Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon, fellows. This afternoon, I have the pleasure of spending a few minutes with no stranger to you all, our former college president, Doug Young. Doug, how are you? I'm fine, Mike. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. So you're in the Bay Area, correct? That's right. It's a great day in San Francisco. Well, let me ask you, I went out for lunch and I was bombarded by pollen showers. Do you have that over there? You know, we don't really very much. We've got the sea breeze that keeps everything down. So we're in pretty good shape that way. Yeah. Well, as a spring allergy sufferer, the beauty of it is lost on me. But anyway, so Doug, you had a quite a long career. If, if my math is right, 43 years of practice. Is that right? That sounds about right. Yeah. Done lots of different things, but it looks like if we had to identify an area of focus for you, it sounds like white collar and internal investigations is certainly something that you do with a degree of frequency. Is that right? That's a big part of my practice. And the other side is complex civil litigation, class actions and things like that, primarily in federal court. So you're right. It's a mixed bag. Right. I also note that you are the recipient of several awards. I won't embarrass you by walking through them, but one certainly stands out to me. And this is from some time ago the ABA Pro Bono Publico Award in 1992. Do you recall what you were doing at that point in your practice to have earned that recognition? Yeah, I think that probably comes from the fact that I've done three death penalty cases, post-conviction cases over the course of my career. I'm glad to say that all three of my clients are off of death row now, but they are interesting cases and they were important cases. And I think that's probably why I got that award. Yeah. I've not done any death work at an appellate stage, but I've tried four or five to verdict. One as a prosecutor and four, I think, as a defense attorney. And I'm saying I think just because at 32 years into it, I can't remember whether the fourth went to jury. But those cases are draining, right? Well, whichever side you're on, Mike, it's a big responsibility when you take on those cases. The stakes are high. The responsibility is great, whether you're the prosecutor or the defense lawyer. And you're right. They're just exhausting and a lot of sleepless nights. Sure. All right. So indulge me. I want to go back. I want to go back to the early days of Doug. I know your parents were both teachers. My mom was a teacher. I like to say I grew up in a household full of teachers. My wife's a teacher. Your dad taught drama. Is that correct? That's correct. And you, as I'm told, developed a love for storytelling. Is that something from your childhood experience or just a skill or a talent that you developed later in life? I think it's just a part of the way that you grow up. I mean, our family was a family of storytellers. My grandfather was a storyteller on my father's side, and my uncle was a storyteller as well. And then we had some people that married into the family that were harmonica players. So kind of went that way. Must have made for some interesting conversations around holiday dinners, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Competition for airtime, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, everybody talking. Doug, you tell me if I'm attributing this correctly. You're quoted as saying that the common law has developed through stories of human nature and human interaction. Is that right? That's what I believe. I believe it has developed in that way, at least in part. Yeah. So let's unpack that a bit. Are you saying that judges sort of develop the common law through their learned experiences, their shared and learned experiences? 
Well, I think it's partly judges, but also with the guidance of lawyers. I mean, law has been, I think, a part of society as we know it, at least since the Old Testament. And there's a lot about the law in there. And it's about the human condition, how we get along with each other. How do we have norms in society that will allow us to live together, hopefully peacefully, even though we find ourselves in fraught times right now. And I think that's how common law begins itself. Do you think that there's a relationship between trial work and the evolution of common law? And I can be a little bit more specific. One of the other points I think you've made during interviews is that you observe a relationship between trial work and the rule of law. Yep. Is that right? Describe that for us. Well, the rule of law, and of course, it's very important to the college. It's one of the things that stands out in our mission statement. And as we record this in April of 2022, we know that the rule of law is being challenged in a theater of war internationally as well. And trials are where we get to take the evidence and speak to juries very often, judges sometimes if it's a bench trial. But we get to advocate for a position. And it's a position that we believe in or are willing to advocate for on behalf of a cause or a person or a company. But it's based in the notion that we resolve our disputes not through violence, but through thoughtful commentary and discussion, and hopefully can come to common ground at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I sense some apprehension on your part that advocacy may be at risk. I worry sometimes about advocacy being at risk. We sometimes see this is not attributable to one side of the political spectrum or the other, but we do sometimes see publicity-obsessed people, politicians perhaps, people who are masters of, shall we call it, resentment politics, who might be focused on consolidating power in ways that challenge the rule of law. And we see that sometimes when people make comments about individual judges by name or criticisms of judges and even jurors. And I worry about that from time to time. The independence of our judiciary is very important for all of us. It's important to the college. And I think that now, as much as ever, it's something we have to keep an eye on. Yeah, I've not been at the bar as long as you, but I certainly recall in years past that there seemed to be more sense of reverence for the judiciary, not to mention the independence of the judiciary. And now it just sort of seems like the judiciary is fair game. I feel that way too. And it's one of the reasons why we have a committee on judicial independence. And one of the reasons why from time to time, the college either at the national level or even at the local state or province level will speak out if they see a situation where a judge or an opinion is being unfairly attacked. I mean, every person is, of course, and every decision is subject to fair commentary in terms of what's right and what's wrong. But when we get into personal attacks, ad hominem attacks, or disrespect for those who are trying to administer the judicial process, that's where I think we have an obligation as lawyers, because the judges really can't speak for themselves. As lawyers, I think we have an obligation to stop, look, and listen, and say to the public, this is not how we resolve our differences in a civil society. Yeah, let's linger on that for a moment. While organizations like the college certainly weigh in when the judiciary is under attack, I've often wondered 
whether the general public accepts the voice of surrogates. In other words, as you say, judges really aren't at liberty to defend themselves. But you know how it goes. Sometimes when the accused is silent, he or she is presumed guilty, incompetent, ineffective in some way, right? Yeah, but I think the public does listen to us from time to time, and we have an obligation to speak out. One of the things that we have done is to have a joint effort with the National Association of Women Judges to develop a public education pilot project through which the college fellows make public presentations using some prepared materials. And this goes not necessarily to bar associations or rotary clubs, although they're certainly welcome to listen. It goes to schools, PTA, places where normal citizens are meeting and the judicial process is explained to them, not necessarily in the context of a particular case or dispute, but so that they can understand how our judicial process works, what the role of the law is, the lawyers are, and the judges. And I'm hoping that over time, this effort, which just began really very recently, will bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Doug, have you ever given any thought to the bench for yourself? I did early on in my career, but I'm very happy that I am where I am. I enjoy advocating. I like activity. I was a judicial law clerk for a judge who was at the trial court level on federal court, and we tried cases in San Francisco, Seattle, Las Vegas, and he sat with the Ninth Circuit and with the Sixth Circuit. So I got a chance to you know, see the trial side and the appellate side as well. I think I am where I ought to be, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah. You know, if you're like the rest of us, you were lucky in that you ended up where you ought to be. Because when I was in law school, I didn't think for an instant that I would be a trial lawyer. I was convinced and bound and determined to be a transactional lawyer. And 32 years later, I'm enjoying trial work like yourself. When you were in school, did you know you wanted to be a trial lawyer? No. It's funny that you said that because I was actually hired in my firm to be a transactional lawyer. You know, I took three semesters of tax in law school. I thought I was pretty good at it. And then after my judicial clerkship, when the judge sat me down and said, you know, Doug, you've got the ability to be an advocate in the well of the courtroom and you might owe it to some folks to give it a try and see if you can't contribute in that way. And I'm lucky enough that I made that choice. Like you, I suspect, I often come across young lawyers in whom I see the sort of trial spark or the advocacy spark. And I have to catch myself because I will often say, you know, you ought to consider trial work. And then I'm reminded that the opportunities for trial work are not nearly as frequent as they used to be, right? Certainly not in firm settings. What do you do about that? You see a young person who has the potential to be a trial lawyer. Do you sort of encourage them to do it with a qualification or what? I encourage them to do it. I encourage them to grab every opportunity that they can to be in court. And if not in court, to be standing up in front of someone, maybe it's a board, maybe it's even an internal meeting at the firm, but to be on their feet making a presentation and a serious presentation. Like many firms, we participate in loaner projects here with the district attorney's office and the public defender's office. And we try to get our people out to trial as often as they can. But you're right. When I started practicing, we would go out to Department 1 with four or five files on a Monday. You'd see which trial was going out. If they didn't have a courtroom, you might be continued for a few days. But almost always, you either settled on the courthouse steps or you were in trial. Those days are quite different now. We don't do it that way. 
but I think we owe it to our younger lawyers coming up and to the people we serve to be sure that they are getting good experience. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk about the college for a second more. Like you, I've spent some time on a state committee and you see names and you review credentials of people and you're often heartbroken by the absence of enough active jury trial work, right? I mean, how's the college dealing with that? If the opportunities to try cases in front of juries are declining or waning, is the college considering other metrics? Not necessarily. I mean, we do look, as it's been stated by other people, we fish in other ponds. So we look for traditional jury trial work, and you can't get into college without being a trial lawyer. So if you've had no trials, it's just not going to happen because that's the nature of who we are. But if you've had some trials and maybe some contested, genuinely contested arbitrations where the rules of evidence are somewhat in play and someone's making rulings, those can be considered as well as a part of your overall body of work as a trial lawyer. And we also look at how many days of trial has someone been in. There are big firm and big trial lawyers who might only have a handful of trials, but each trial might have been, you know, two or three months long. And they've got as many days in the courtroom in trial as someone whose practice is a little smaller. That's right. And something else I'm encouraged by is as you say, fishing in other ponds, the college's openness to lawyers in various avenues of public service, where there are many more opportunities to get on your feet and actively try cases. That's right. And we also have a new program that actually started a couple of years ago as well, but the pandemic slowed it down, but it's going to be getting started next month. And that's our diversity in the courtroom program, which is designed and dedicated to developing the next generation of diverse and inclusive trial advocates. And that will be run out of Latham and Watkins in Chicago for its initial program. We have a faculty, students had to apply, but it is definitely going to be a mirror of the kind of lawyers we have in our countries today and will benefit clients in our system of justice in general, I think. I mean, that sort of sounds by the title like an intentional effort to identify lawyers who are diverse and practicing in different settings, or is the focus of the search diversity of subject matter? No, it's the former. It's a recognition that the judges, jurors, court personnel, and witnesses all come from diverse backgrounds and that the lawyers should mirror the diversity in our society and in our courtrooms. It's designed for trial practice. Yeah. So let me ask you a follow-up question on that. And I've often wondered this, and I've put this question to other fellows. Do you think that when the gavel falls, the diversity factor matters? In other words, do jurors pay attention to the gender, the ethnicity, the nationality, however you measure diversity? Do you think it matters to juries once the gavel falls? I think it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and case by case. We all have eyes and ears and personal experiences, and that's what juries and judges bring to the courtroom. So we can't deny that people do take a look at who's in the well and who's on the bench. But I do think that once the trial is in play and the evidence is in play, that those markers fall away over time and that juries and judges and lawyers are capable of taking those blinders away and just looking at the facts and the evidence. Yeah. And I'm encouraged by that, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. So if you had to sort of paint a picture of the college of tomorrow, what would it look like? 
It will be a mix of all kinds, all genders, all races, all sexual orientations. It will be focused on the college mission. It'll be increasingly diverse and all the better. I think you're right. I certainly hope you are, and I'm encouraged by that as well. So I want to shift now and talk about some Doug-specific things, if I may. Sure. I note that you majored in philosophy after taking a hiatus from Yale to be a factory laborer in Japan. Is that right? That's true. Now, that's a heck of a lead. Unpack that for us. Well, I was interested in Eastern thought and philosophy, and things were a little crazy in the late 60s in our nation. We had a lot going on in terms of the Vietnam War. We had the civil rights movement. And a lot of things were in play. And I decided to drop out for a year, take my interest in Eastern thought to Japan. I spoke some Japanese. I had studied it. And I worked in a factory in Hitachi City, which is north of Tokyo in a rural area. And I spent the year doing that and doing some academic study there and then returned to Yale to finish. I would imagine that your time in Japan had an impact. Certainly, it shaped the way you thought. It's always hard to know. I think it did in some ways. I think it maybe made me a little more mindful, maybe a better lawyer as a result. Until the pandemic really hit hard, I was going to Japan on a regular basis to meet with clients. So I still have an active presence in the Japanese civil system. So yeah, I think it did make a difference. Yeah. You know, recently I was with some colleagues and we were collaborating on this sort of in-house trial training program. And I was trying to articulate with some mid-level associates the notion of self-awareness during trial, right? It's not enough to get up and project and articulate. That's important, but you have to have a sense of what you're saying and what you look like. Does that make sense to you? It does. And it also relates to something that I think is important for trial lawyers, and that is having the ability to listen. That starts with picking a jury, of course, on voir dire, but sometimes we are so caught up in what we've planned for the day, we can't wait to get the next question out, and we haven't listened to what the witness has said. And the witness or the juror may have given us a tell, I will call it, a tell that there's something in their answer that we ought to explore and listen to and maybe be willing to pivot and go in a slightly different direction in terms of what they've given us. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. I think a lesson that I've learned the hard way over time is that there's nothing wrong with slowing down in trial, right? Because as you say, you have in your mind the sense of where you want to go. You have a sequence of questions or a series of questions, and you tend to speak as the thoughts occur to you. And because you're familiar with your outline, it's a fluid pace. But it's hard for a jury and sometimes a witness to keep up with you, right? Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. So the ability to take a deep breath, maybe make eye contact with that jury, see if they're following what you're doing, whether you have to adjust. You know, there's the story of the lawyer who gave a very convoluted argument to the judge. And when she finished with it, she said, do you follow me, Your Honor? And the judge said, I do, but if I knew the way back, I wouldn't take another step. I love it. So we have to be aware of that possibility. Yeah. So you made the important point that we've got to develop the patience and the skill to listen. And I think we agree that it's important that we pace ourselves, that we frankly just slow down when appropriate. But I want to go back to a term that I've read in some pieces about you, 
mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you in the context of trial work? Well, I like to think it means having the ability to stop, look, and listen, to think about what it is we're really trying to accomplish in any given moment, both the case writ large, but also the moment that's about to unfold before you, to be willing to change direction if you need to. And then ultimately, and this may sound a little odd, but really to just enjoy what it is we're doing in the courtroom. What an honor it is that we could work in the well of a courtroom, whether in Canada or in the United States, in service of a cause that's bigger than we are. That is a real blessing, and I think we need to remind ourselves of it every time we step into the courtroom. Yeah. I mean, just sort of a light bulb moment of, I can't believe I'm here doing this, right? Exactly. Yeah. So have you ever shared your thoughts on mindfulness with younger lawyers? And if so, how do they react to it? Because I could imagine some being intimidated by that. Yeah, I talk about it a lot. One of the quotes I remember is from the great actor Sir Lawrence Olivier, who was talking about acting. And he was quoted as saying, you have to have the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off. And I've often thought that that was pretty good advice for lawyers as well. And so I try to say to younger lawyers, let's step back. Let's enjoy what we're doing. Let's know we have to roll up our sleeves and do the drudge work at the beginning because we have to be humble when we approach this job that we have. But then let's know that we can do it, have the confidence to do it, and walk into the courtroom with your head held high, ready to enjoy the day. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. I'm just thinking back over the years about some of the experiences I've had in trial and perhaps my evolution as a trial lawyer. And I note that there's a difference between confidence and arrogance, and that if you tend too close to arrogance, then you can come off in front of a jury as faking it. You know what I mean? Totally. And to the judges as well. And jurors are pretty good at picking up on that over time. Yes, I totally agree with that. All right. So growing up in the household of a drama teacher, two teachers, a house rich in storytelling, how did you train yourself to not run away with your own stories at trial? In other words, to not sort of get swallowed up and consumed by the story. How do you remember where you are and what you're doing? Well, first of all, I have to remember, we have to remember, it's not our story. It's someone else's story. So again, we have to have the humility to recognize that and prepare from that perspective. And then I treat it like any other story. I try to make it come to life for the jury as best I can. Maybe it means a video. Maybe it means coming up with a syllogy or something that I can use to explain a concept in a way that makes sense. I think analogies work very well for juries. I work hard on trying to come up with those kinds of explanatory ways of getting the message across. Yeah, I love that. And just indulge me a second on that. You use the word explanatory techniques. And there's a difference between telling a story and explaining the facts. So there can be, right? I mean, you can explain it through storytelling, but you don't have to tell a story. Would you agree? I would agree. And I'm just thinking back to some of the trial ad programs that I've been at and participated in. We find ourselves as instructors telling young lawyers, you've got to figure out a way to tell your story to the jury. You know, listening to you, that may be an unfair bit of advice because not everything can be reduced or should be reduced to a story. Yeah, some cases don't reduce themselves to a story, but 
I like to believe that almost every case can be made to appear bigger than just the raw facts might appear to be, so that the jury or the judge, if it's a bench trial, feels that what it is they're evaluating and being asked to decide is important. We don't want them to believe that we're wasting their time on something that doesn't have meaning. So if we can imbue them with the thought that they are in the courtroom doing a service and this that's unfolding in front of them has a meaning to someone or something, then it helps them understand that what they're doing is an important part of our community process. And it sort of binds you and the jury to the importance of the issue, right? Right. We're locked together, arm in arm. We're in this together. We're going to try to work it out together. Yep. So, Doug, this may be a series of unfair questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I got you in the hot seat. <laughs> What's the hardest part of a jury trial? If you had to come up with something for our audience, what would it be? For me, if it's a jury trial, the hardest part is voir dire. Okay. And tell us why. Well, some people are just masters at voir dire. I have some things I think I'm good at. I just don't think voir dire is the best thing that I do. It may be because I work in the federal system primarily, and these days judges ask a lot of the questions in federal court. But I think it's hard to follow up with jurors. You're always worried about offending someone. If you don't offend the person you're questioning, maybe someone else down the line is hearing a question that you're asking and feeling like it's judgmental of them, even though you're not asking the question of them. Or they may feel that you're being unfair to the person. So to me, it's one of those things that's very hard to prepare for, even with you know all the things we do to evaluate jurors in advance with questionnaires and things like that. I just think it's a hard thing to do. No, I agree. And it really is a function of the venue, right? As you say, there's a big difference between state and federal court. And then within a state court jurisdiction, it varies among the judges within a circuit, right? Yeah, totally. Yes, indeed. But you know, the thing about voir dire that's different from opening and closing is it's the one shot during trial where you're literally allowed to engage with the jury. And if you're lucky, you get them going in a back and forth view, right? You hope that you have that. And when you have that, it's a magical moment. And that is certainly true. But I, I do recall one of my early trials where I asked a juror, one of the witnesses is going to be Dr. So-and-so have you heard of Dr. So-and-so? And she said, yes, I used to work for him and I wouldn't believe a word he said. Oh my. So that was a difficult moment in voir dire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can prepare for opening. You can do a great prepare for closing. You don't know what's coming in voir dire. That's right. And once it's out there, right? I mean, what do you do with that? So that juror is gone, but at that point you're worried about everybody else, right? Everybody else, yeah. You know, the old follow-up question is, well, could you be fair? Could you hear the evidence and all that? And you ask those questions, but you know, you know that the bad news has been laid in the minds of everybody else. Yeah. So everybody does it differently, but how does Doug Young get ready for argument? Do you practice it? Are there some lines you don't cross for fear that you'll jinx yourself? What do you do? Oh, I practice. I don't believe in jinxes, so that doesn't bother me at all. I practice. I will practice in front of, well, if we are lucky enough to have a trial consultant, a jury consultant, then of course I really want to do it in that environment. And then I have the benefit of the consultant's thoughts. I have the benefit of my colleagues' thoughts. If we've used a mock jury, see how they've reacted to the argument. 
And so I really believe in preparing from the ground up and doing a lot of preparation. And you've also got a secret weapon at home. If I've done my homework, I know that your wife, Terry, is a PhD in chemistry. Is that right? That's true. She's the smart one in the family. Of course. Of course. Do you ever bounce your arguments, your thoughts off Terry, or is she essentially drawing a line? No. I like to involve Terry in hearing these things because she knows my weaknesses as well as anyone else and even better. And she's very good at saying, even though, you know, she's a scientist, right? But she will say, you know, Doug, you've got this very complex idea you're working with here, but I don't understand it. And a jury's not going to get it either. So let's see if we can find some other ways of making it better. She's very good at that. And I really appreciate it. My wife teaches kindergarten, Doug. And I've sort of coined the phrase of kindergarten language, right? If you couldn't explain it to a group of kindergartners, then you need to take another run at it. That sounds like really good advice, and lucky you, you get a chance to really get it done. She's not shy about telling me I'm missing the mark. So like you, I've got an asset, right? Yep. So let me go back to your work on the death penalty cases. What was that like? I mean, just the gravity of that representation, right? And it sounds like you had successes on each occasion where you were appointed to represent a death row inmate. Yeah. Well, those are, first of all, the facts in those cases are never very pretty. And the stakes, of course, are very high. The first one that I handled was for an African-American young man who was tried when he was 19 years old and convicted. Ultimately, his death penalty, that is the penalty phase of the trial, and here in California, we do them in two phases, a liability phase and a penalty phase. In the penalty phase, we were successful in showing that things about his life that should have been presented to the jury were not, and that the penalty should be overturned in favor of a life sentence instead of a death sentence. And then most recently, we have obtained a whole new trial for him on the grounds the DA, the district attorney, trying the case had excluded all of the African-American jurors on the veneer on racially prejudiced grounds that were not justified. That's called a Batson challenge. Not granted very often, and it took 40 years to get from his trial to that point. So justice moves slowly, but at least it moves. And that was I was glad to get that result for him. Well, I can't help but follow up. So how'd you prove it? You had the transcript. Was the prosecutor unable to articulate a non-race-based explanation, or were you lucky enough to have notes from jury selection that reveal the motive? No, we didn't have notes, and it was hard off of a cold record, which I think is one of the reasons why it took so long. But we were able painstakingly to show that each reason that he gave for each challenge didn't hold water. He even made some of them up after the fact. For example, juror number two, I heard her say something in church. I thought that was something she showed prejudice on her part. Well, it turned out that was after the fact. It couldn't possibly have been something that happened before the trial it was concocted. And so we finally got a court to sit down with us and painstakingly go through all of those things and to say at the end of the day, there's no question here about what this is a violation of his rights and he has the right to a new trial. Wow. And so the analysis of the jury selection record, it sounds like was a mini trial at the appellate stage of the trial process. Exactly. And very painstaking. Wow. All right, so let me shift. I note that you've represented individual lawyers at trial. Is that right? I have. 
I'm sure everyone is dying to know, what's it like representing one of us? It's often a challenge in the sense that we are not always the best clients to have. We know a lot. We have opinions. And we may like things done the way we like them done. And we will always have advice for our lawyer about how she or he should be doing it. So I think it's a challenge representing lawyers. And, you know, you'll really feel it in your heart of hearts. Here's someone whose livelihood is at stake, whose reputation is at stake. They'll likely forever be stained professionally in some fashion by having even been in a situation where they are the subject of an action. And so there's ego involved, there's pride involved, and sometimes there's some real suffering involved for people who may see their licenses at stake. Mm -hmm. And would you say that some of those same dynamics are at play representing sophisticated, well-resourced clients who aren't lawyers? Sure. Some of our big cases, say securities fraud or antitrust cases, people have opinions about how they go about business and think that what we're doing in the law isn't fair to them. And that comes up a lot in the commercial context. Yeah. All right, Doug, this is the round robin phase of this, right? So you ever lost a case you couldn't lose? Yeah. I lost one for a lawyer in state court. I thought he had a slam dunk defense in a malpractice case. I thought I had the better expert of the two. I thought my jury of Wadir was good. I thought I had a panel that smiled at me a lot. And I thought I was cooking on all cylinders. And guess what? Didn't turn out that way. The good news, I suppose, was that the monetary damages were pretty minimal and there was an insurance company that covered them. But, you know, like I said, his life was kind of upended by the fact of the verdict. Yeah, I think I know the answer to this next question in light of something you just gave me. But have you been able to, at a point in trial, say with a reasonable degree of certainty, I know how this is going to go? Right. In other words, have you ever been able to call it? I suspect all of us have. You can tell in a trial when things are going well, and you can tell if they're not. It doesn't happen in every case. Some of them are a toss-up or a jump ball. But you know when your witnesses have done well that the judge is nodding at you from time to time following your arguments. You can just feel it. I don't know how to explain it, but you can feel it. And I guess that's why we sometimes call trying cases an art, because in some ways it is. And it's something that you can't explain other than to say, I can feel it in my heart. Yeah, it's funny though, because there have been so many occasions when, you know, I'm thinking that the jury and I are connecting. And as you say, there's smiles all over the courtroom and the judge is nodding. And what I've discovered in retrospect was that those nods and the smiles were polite, but they weren't necessarily reflecting that we saw the facts in the same way. Yeah. You don't know if there are smiles because they like you or smiles because they think you're making a fool of yourself. Yeah. As we would say in Virginia, whether they're just smiling and saying, bless his heart or something <laughs> else, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Here we go. I know that you and Terry are avid sports fans. What are your thoughts about this season? We're hopeful for the Giants. You know, my firm used to represent the Oakland A's. I'm friends with some of the people from that era. We've got two baseball teams out here that we like. One is definitely better than the other one, and we hope we don't lose one of them. That's the Oakland team, which we're struggling with a new baseball stadium here, but we're hopeful. Yeah. Have you ever represented an athlete, a competitive athlete? I did. I represented, I won't say who it was, but I represented a fairly prominent athlete who was mislabeled in a sports magazine on account of his gender preference. And he wanted me to get that corrected, and we did. But it caused him some anxiety in the locker room and around in the sports venues. 
So that's my one time around with a famous sports person. As he went as a client, was there a difference between a competitive, successful athlete and a competitive, successful business person, so to speak? Only in the sense that I think professional athletes and people like that are in the public eye and they know they're in the public eye. Many of them, their public persona can actually be monetized. I mean, they make money off of what people think they are. So when they feel that their public persona has been misrepresented, it's not only an ego thing, but for many of them, they believe it to be a financial thing. And so it's important from that perspective to them. Yeah. Doug, I should have asked you this earlier, but I'm dying to hear your answer to it. So let's imagine that rather than speaking to an audience of fellows, you're speaking to law students and they're law students who are prospective trial lawyers. If you had to cite two or three attributes that resonate most with jurors about lawyers, what would they be? You mean attributes for good lawyers or what juries think about lawyers? How about good lawyers? Well, I've mentioned humility already, and I think that's an important thing for us. I've mentioned the ability to listen because I think that's important for us. And I guess the third attribute probably would be resilience. I tell the young people in our firm that this business is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You're going to win some. You're going to lose some. You might go through a streak where you've lost maybe two or three even in a row. You can't let yourself second guess yourself. You need to have the ability to bounce back. I think that one of the reasons why sometimes uh, lawyers and the law are analogized so much to sports and to wars is because the possibility for victory also bears with it a great proximity to the possibility of defeat. And you have to be able to recognize that and roll with it if you're going to have a long career in the law. Yeah, that makes so much sense. You know, I've prosecuted at various points in my life. And whenever I talk to young prosecutors, I would say, you know, you've got to be able to get up the next day, regardless of what you did the previous day or the previous night in court, you've got to be able to get up the next day and do it all over again. Right. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Some would suggest that that reveals a degree of insincerity on our parts, that we're just sort of journeymen and journeywomen moving from matter to matter, but never being really invested in any particular one. But as you say, it reflects resilience. Yep. I think that's very, very important. Yeah. All right. My last one. After 43, 44 years of this, would you do anything different? I don't think so. I think things worked out the right way for me, Mike. I've tried almost every kind of case you can try, from antitrust to patents to criminal defense to important appellate issues like the death penalty. And I've been lucky to be able to do those things. I was lucky enough to go to a public law school on the GI Bill, which meant that I came out unencumbered in debt. So a lot of the younger lawyers today don't have that ability. Yeah, I feel very lucky and I don't think I would change a thing. Well, all right, I'm going to break my own rule and ask you another one just because I'm curious. You've served as a special master a number of times, right? And that's a distinction and an honor unto itself. What's that been like? Oh, it's interesting. I've done special master work in, interestingly, criminal cases. Most people don't think of it in those terms, but I've had two criminal cases where I served as a special master and then several civil cases where I had that role. It's not the same as being a mediator. It's a different role. You're calling balls and strikes. You may be issuing orders. 
So I like to think of it as a service to the judges and the litigants because the judges don't always have enough time to focus in on everything that needs to be handled in a big case. A special master can come in and help work through the issues with the parties. It's not the same, as I say, as being a mediator because you're not mediating, you're making rulings, but hopefully you're helping sort through some difficult concepts and moving the case along. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, Doug, I'm three minutes over. I hope you'll forgive me, but I've tried to be as disciplined as I could be. I could go on and on for another 15, 20 minutes, but I won't do that to you. This has been a real treat for me, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I know that the fellows listening will join me in thanking you for your service to the college. Thank you, Mike. I've enjoyed it a lot. You can go three minutes or you can go a couple hours, but I've really, really enjoyed it and look forward to talking with you again someday. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.